We're in Romans chapter 2 this morning. So while you turn to your Bibles, I'll open mine here. This morning we're looking at chapter 2. We know it's been written by by Paul to the church. Now Rome is a, a Gentile city. It's a capital of the Gentile Empire. <clears throat> and the Jews there form a small minority of people. So it's reasonable to conclude that Paul's readers were probably mostly Gentile in background. And you'll notice that chapter 2 again begins speaking to them as we saw in chapter 1. So many of the believers there, uh, maybe who started the church, were Paul's converts or associates from other parts of the empire. In the last chapter 16, he actually names over 20 of folks that he knew there, even though he'd never been there. So as a result, Paul had this personal, maybe, <clears throat> maybe even protective interest in the Christian community of Rome. He considered the church there, I think, as his church. And this letter bears witness to that. So the first chapters of Romans talk about the gospel, about God's righteousness and and man's sin. Dr. J. Vernon McGee uh, tells us, as we approach this great epistle, I feel totally inadequate because of its great theme, which is the righteousness of God. In light of God's righteousness, the only remedy for man's sin is, is the perfect remedy that we have in Christ that God provided for a lost race. And that's the message of Romans. God takes sinners like I am and as you are, and he brings them into his family and makes us the children, the sons and daughters of God. He does it because of Christ's death on the cross, not because there's any merit in us, or righteousness in us whatsoever. This is the great message of Romans. But as Pastor Jared told us when he began the book, um, and as Pastor Lee clearly spelled out last week, we won't recognize the good news, or at least that the great message of Romans is good news, until we accept that without the gospel we are lost. We're helpless, defeated. But don't you know that's the problem? We don't like to admit that we need help. We want everybody to think we're able to handle whatever comes our way. We struggle against humiliation, or as we see it, of stooping to receive from God something that we can't earn or gain for ourselves. But man is a sinner and needs the grace of God's mercy. It was the theme of last week's message, and it continues on this morning in chapter 2, how each of us is guilty and inexcusable before God. Sandy Adams, many of you men remember him from our men's conferences. He's our great preacher friend from Georgia. He tells us about uh, People Magazine, People magazine once published a poll that surveyed people's attitudes toward various sins. 
readers quantified how guilty they would feel after committing different sins. So the numbers were tabulated, and each sin was given a sin coefficient, or as Sandy put it, a syndex. One meant blameless, you see in that box. Ten was guilty to the max. Well, murder was considered uh, most the worst of sins in this syndex with a 9.84. Rape was next with 9.77. But there were other sinister sins as well. Child abuse, 9.59. Drug dealing, uh, 8.83. Adultery, 7.63. But on the other end of the sin spectrum, sins thought of as benign or non-threatening were selfishness, gossip, jealousy, lust, and for whatever reason, (laughs) nude sunbathing. Now, according to the poll, vice and violence deserve the highest syndex, while sins of the heart come in lower. Yet, in today's chapter of Romans, we're going to discover that God looks at sin differently. God, you might say, has his own sin index. Paul contended in chapter 2 that respectable sinners are just as culpable as reprobate sinners. In chapter 1, the heathens, <clears throat> the heathen was sentenced. In chapter 2, it's time for the hypocrites and the Hebrews, and in fact, all humanity are put on trial, both the unrighteous and the self-righteous end up guilty as charged. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Paul recognizes a universal behavior that on its own condemns us. It doesn't consider our culture or our age or our intellect, or social standing, or wealth. We all have done it, and we stand guilty and exposed. God judges us by our own standard that we demand of others. This is a standard that applies to all mankind everywhere, at any time since the Garden of Eden. You see, God judges men not according to what they do not know, but according to what they do know. And this universal standard is, don't do it to me. Back in the day, I call it that, in another era, you might say, I was asked to be a speaker in the high school classes for kids in my youth group. They could receive extra points for lining up a speaker, and it allowed me to make contact with some of their friends at school. So I spoke in biology classes on, on uh, creation, home ec classes on relationships, civics classes about law and morality. And it was in the civics class where I was leading the discussion about morality and absolute values, moral values that apply to every one of us equally. I was saying that there is a universal standard, an absolute standard for right and wrong. Well, while I said that, this young guy in the back of the room, he challenged me. He speaks up, this 18-year-old senior athlete, 
Mr. Cool. And he says, I decide what's wrong for me. If I feel like doing it, I just do it. It's nobody else's business but mine. And as usual, in those days, and probably today, he began saying that that applies to dating and sex. He said, if I want to kiss a girl or get fresh with her at the dance, that's my business. Well, the whole class stopped looking at him, and they shifted their undivided attention at me. And so I'm thinking for a moment. And I said to him, well, you've just proven me correct. You've made my point. And he yells back at me, how? I said, well, that girl might be someone else's girlfriend. So? Well, what if some guy at the dance does that to your girlfriend? And without thinking, he blurts out, they better not, not my girlfriend. And the whole class burst out in laughter. You see, that's what's absolutely wrong, absolute sin. It crosses every line of diversity. Don't do it to me. Well, that's what Romans chapter 2, verse 1 is all about. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whatever, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We condemn ourselves by how we judge others. Plus, now, you've also committed the sin of hypocrisy. When he condemns another, he is in fact condemning uh, himself. Notice, though, in verse 1, three times <clears throat> Paul uses the term judge. and in, in the Greek, that word means to condemn or damn to hell. And that's not our call. God says we're never to condemn another person to hell. But God also says that not all judgments are wrong. In Matthew 7, Jesus commands us to make certain judgments. He says, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. By their fruits you will know them. Well, Apparently, it's okay to judge for identification, but not for condemnation. As a parent, it was my responsibility to make judgment calls for my kids, to identify movies they should or shouldn't watch, or identify places they should or shouldn't go to, and to judge the values and behavior of the friends they spent time with. <clears throat> But God forbids me to have the idea that on any level, any area, that I'm better or that I'm more spiritual or that I'm more righteous than you. The Bible teaches us that we're all sinners by nature. Verse 2, let's go on. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth <clears throat> against those who practice such things. So verse 2 tells us that God's judgment knows the truth. Nothing is hidden from him. This is our second point in the back of the bulletin. With God as judge, there is no such thing as the perfect crime. Men may escape human justice, 
but they will never escape divine justice. We won't escape even one time that we've judged another. God will judge, said Paul, and his judgment is according to truth. You see, we can't know man's heart. God alone knows the whole story, and he can make the proper call. Therefore, our job is to love people and to leave the judging to God. He will judge perfectly according to truth, because all things are naked and open before the Lord. He tells us this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, these verses touch on another absolute standard of right and wrong that many people live by. They live by the rule, the other universal standard, just don't get caught. And many times, it looks like at that moment that they're getting away with it. And I admit, sometimes that bothers me. Well, King David was much like we are. It seems that many wicked men were getting away with their evil. In Psalm 37, that's all about this. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. This is what Paul is reminding us here in verse 3, that no one is getting away with anything. Judgment will come soon. But you see, many people misunderstand God's plan and his purpose. And we see this in verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Well, yeah, it's true that judgment isn't a reality or a certainty for many people. They even mock, or as Paul says, despise the whole idea of a God who holds them responsible for their actions. While God waits, showing his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, as Paul says, he's waiting to extend the opportunity for repentance. Well, while he waits, mankind mocks him, saying, well, where is your God? Or saying, remember, well, God is dead. Or even saying, that, they're deny, that they deny God's very existence. And it's true. God isn't coming soon enough for some of us, especially as we see evil prosper on this, on this planet. So David goes on in, verse 30, in, in Psalms 37, verse 7, Rest in the Lord, the Lord says, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Well, Paul reminds us in verse 5, he says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up, storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and 
revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, refusing to recognize the Lord's patience and mercy, refusing to repent, mankind is storing up, piling high the judgment that's coming. The third thing in our bulletin, don't confuse God's patience and mercy with his approval. David continues in Psalm 37, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And down in verse 20, But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. You see, Paul calls this the righteous judgment of God. God, the righteous judge, makes no mistakes. Well, people ask, will there be people in hell unfairly? Will everyone have a fair chance for heaven? Well, when I ask those questions to myself, a verse that I lean on often when I don't fully understand God's way or can't explain them is found in Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham says this to God in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. When the divine judge arrives at a verdict, it will be right. The punishment or penalty must also be right. You see, God makes no mistakes. The judge of all the earth will do right. He cannot do wrong. He is the righteous judge. Every occupant of hell will be fully deserving. Paul comes back to God's program in verse 6. Who, he speaks of God, will render to each one according to his deeds. So God's judgment is just. Every man will get exactly what his deeds require. Unless he's asked for God's mercy like the thief on the cross. This has been God's theme throughout the Old Testament.